For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right. John 20, the resurrection. So let's just jump right in and let's read the part of John, which is very short, really, describing what happened. We, uh, several weeks ago, we, we talked about the cross and the cries from the cross. Then we get to John 20 and start in verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciples went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running there, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary, Magda- Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stepped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascended to my Father and and your Father, and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, "I I have seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. So that's essentially the resurrection account as it exists in the Gospel of John. And so this opens up a whole basket full of questions. A whole lot of things when it comes to the resurrection that we have to look at and think about. Um, Did this happen? Is this believable? And one of the things that I think is important to understand is... You know, not all Christians, it's, it's well known, not all Christians agree on all things, right? There are many different denominations, there are many different interpretations, there are many different things. But there are things that the Bible itself holds out as key elements of necessary requirements to be considered a Christian. And theologians call these things essential doctrines, that there's a lot of room for discussion, debate, and disagreement about some things, but there are certain things where there, as far as the Bible is concerned, really not room for debate. These are things that are key elements to what it is to be a Christian. And some of these things are things like the deity and humanity of Christ, that the Bible holds forth that we have to understand that Jesus is both God and man, because if Christ were not God, he couldn't die for everybody. He wouldn't have had an eternal nature. 
And so he could have died for one person, but he could not have taken on the punishment that everyone deserves. And of course, if he were not human, then he couldn't die in the place of human beings. So that's why it's essential, because it's related to the gospel and our understanding of what Jesus did on the cross and how it applies to us. Another important essential doctrine would be salvation by grace, not by works, that you cannot earn your way to God. That it is a free gift offered by God that we need to choose to receive, but that you can't earn your way to God by being a good person. This is essential to understanding the core of what Jesus did on the cross. You cannot be good and win your way, earn your way into God's favor. And the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ is one of these things that is held forth as essential from the Bible for understanding what it means to be a Christian. And so does a literal resurrection matter? That question, you know, from a biblical standpoint, as far as the New Testament authors were concerned and the Holy Spirit that inspired them, it matters very much. The Bible itself tells us the repercussions that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that the New Testament authors are frauds. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 15. Paul writes, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Do you see the importance of this in Paul's thinking is, one, he's so confident that the resurrection happened that he puts his entire reputation as a pastor, as a disciple, on the literal event that Jesus rose from the dead. He says, if that is not true, then all of us are frauds. We are all fakers. We learn from the Bible that if Jesus didn't literally bodily raise from the dead, that his death had no meaning. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then your, our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. I mean, you couldn't design a more strident statement hinging on the importance of a literal resurrection of Christ. Your faith is in vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It means nothing. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. There is no more poignant, powerful, direct way to place the ultimate importance on the resur literal resurrection of Jesus Christ than to say, if he didn't rise from the dead, then nothing that we have said is true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is just another man-made philosophy with some ideas by some people about how to be good and how to live and trying to tell you what matters, but they have no more authority than any other religious teaching if the resurrection isn't true. And we, we're just another self-help group. We're just another 
group of people coming together, groping in the darkness, trying to figure out why this world is so painful and trying to seek comfort in something that's not true. That's how important it is. However, if Jesus did raise from the dead, if that literally happened, then the implications of that are vastly important as well. What does it mean? It means the supernatural is real. It is undeniable if somebody died, was put in a tomb, left dead for three days, and came back to life, that is supernatural, that is above nature. That is something that does not happen in nature, but has happened by some power other than nature. It would also have to mean that the afterlife is real. That we are not the sum of our parts, that we are not just chemical reactions, that there is such a thing as a soul. Why? Because when his body died, he continued. He didn't disappear. He didn't cease to exist. Where did he go? What happened? And how did he return? The implications of this are incredible. It's proof, if the resurrection is real, that there is life beyond death. It also, according to Jesus, proves that all his teachings, all of what we've been studying through the book of John, has the stamp of authenticity of the creator of the universe behind it. It is the signet ring of Jesus' authority and his teaching. This came up early in the book of John when the uh, Pharisees were like, who do you think you are and what right do you have to teach us these things and say these things and do these things? Look at John 2, 18 through 21. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us that your authority for doing, that your author, of your authority for doing these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? but he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was asked the question, how do we know that you have the authority to teach us these things from God? And he said, because I'm going to raise from the dead after three days. That's how you know. And it makes sense. I mean, what an amazing logical check. If, if he did all these things, was crucified, the, steer, the spear stabbed in his side, the blood and the water coming out, taken down from the cross and put in a tomb, sealed and guarded for three days, and rose from the dead exactly the way that he said that he would. Well, who could do that but God? And why would God do that if he hates what Jesus taught us? It's the highest form of confidence that we could have if the resurrection is real. It all hinges upon that. And it also means that Jesus' death did pay for our sins. It's proof that his claim that he took the sins of the world upon himself so that we could be forgiven, God agrees with that claim as well. Romans 4.25, Paul says, he who, delivered, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. It's 
the authenticating code that confirms that our sins are truly forgiven through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why it's important. That's why it's so central to all these things and why the New Testament authors were so adamant as people who lived in that time. One thing that you see is that from New Testament authors is they were very keenly aware that they were living in a pinnacle moment in eternity history and that they felt a sense of need and responsibility to record accurately and write down the truth of what they saw because they knew that all subsequent generations would need reliable testimony of the incredible things that they had seen. So the resurrection is a claim of critical importance. Meaning that if it is true, and all these other implications are true, then it's something that you should set the course of your life by. You should decide God is real. The supernatural is real. This life is not the only life. Eternity matters. What I do in this life matters in eternity. And so I should live as though someone who is storing up their treasure in heaven and doing the will of God so that I can enjoy the rewards of that forever. On the other hand, if it's a lie, if the resurrection did not happen, then if you live your life as though all those things are true, you are living for a lie, that means nothing. The stakes couldn't be higher. So how do we authenticate a claim like this? You know, it's difficult to claim that anything, and to, to prove that anything happened 2,000 years ago that's claimed. How would we go about that? And a claim of this sort, let's agree, deserves the highest levels of critical analysis. Why? Because of the implications. Right? If I say something that doesn't matter and that isn't going to affect your life, then you can be like, okay, that sounds like it's not true, but uh, whatever. Like, I'm not going to go investigate. If I said uh, the Browns won the Super Bowl last year, you'd be like, mm, no, they didn't. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I could prove it. And you'd be like, whatever, I don't even want to see your proof. I don't care, right? Because it's not going to change your life. It's not going to change the course of your destiny and affect what you think matters. It's not important. It's a little important. (laughs) But not very important, right? But when I say this is true and the entire course of your life, your spouse's life, your children's life, your neighbors, and everybody that you know, it's important that we live as though this is true and it would radically change the way we view each other and the entire world and eternity. Well, we should be critical about that claim. We should, we should ask for evidence that that's true and we should examine that evidence which is exactly what the New Testament authors intended for us to do. How can we know? How can we know that Jesus raised from the dead? Well, fortunately, there is a great deal of evidence, historical evidence for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is very different from nearly every other religious document 
because it is not a book of sayings. It's not a book of philosophy. It's not a book of, you know, just wise uh, statements that you can reflect upon and say, um, yes, I think that sounds very true. It is a record of things that happened in places that truly existed that had their own records apart from the Bible. And so when it makes claims about all these different things, people, places, geography, culture, it can be tested. Those claims can be tested. We can look to archaeology and the historical record, and we can look and, and test and say, well, if the Bible is trustworthy in areas that can be tested, that would mean that I should think about trusting it in areas that are more difficult to test, right? So we can look and we can say, okay, how reliable is the Bible as a history? And we start with four eyewitness accounts, the Gospels, John being one. These were people who lived during the time who we are confident were written by, the people that it claims to be written by, who were there and saw these things. Matthew was the tax collector who followed Jesus. Mark was John Mark, was a disciple of Peter. Most people believe that Mark is like Peter's gospel. Luke was not one of the disciples, and we'll talk more about this in just a minute, but he was someone who understood the importance of the historical documentation of the moment and went around interviewing everybody that was alive and that did see those things. So he is also a primary source because he was interviewing the people that were there. And John, who we've been studying, was a disciple. Look at how Luke begins. This is important that you understand. The, the, the authors of the Gospels, their own sense of the importance of the historical accuracy of what they wrote. Luke 1, 1 through 4 starts, And as much as things have, as much, many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. What is he saying? He's saying, I've gone around and interviewed everybody who was there from the very beginning, and I've recorded what they said so that you can be confident in the truth of the claims of Christ. That was his goal. It's a very interesting history, if you look over it. There was a guy named Sir William Ramsey in the late 1800s. He was an archaeologist, and he was an atheist. He was against the idea and, and did not believe in the, the authenticity, especially of the book of Luke and Acts, which primarily took place in the, Asia, in the area of Asia Minor and Greece, where he was a specialist. And there were all these claims about who was the procurator and who was the magistrate and what town was in what uh, um, district and all these things that can be corroborated from the extra biblical record. And he was like, this is total, fa totally false. That there, there is 
no reason to believe that Luke, who makes all these claims about where rivers are and mountains are and who was in charge, we, we know that these things aren't true. And he set out to systematically disprove Luke Acts and became a Christian on the basis of what he found. At the end of his light, he would wrote, I set out to look for the truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet, and found it there. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. It's very interesting, and I would encourage you to study some of his findings because he went out to disprove the Bible and wound up being instrumental in proving many of the claims that were considered inaccurate in the book of Luke and Acts to the point where he met Christ because of his scrutiny of the historical record. We have other sources what we call extra-biblical historical sources, sources outside of the Bible that were around near the time when Jesus was crucified, and we have records from these people as well. One of them is Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish general and historian who lived between 37 and 100 A.D., he was in the rebellion against Rome, captured, enslaved. And then, you know, essentially what Rome would do is when you rebelled as frequently and as harshly as the, the people of Israel did, eventually they said, okay, what we're going to do now is just wipe you from the face of the earth. And we're going to go and we're going to kill you and we're going to spread your people all over the Roman Empire. We're going to make your religion illegal and we're going to put new people in your land so that you can never go back there and your culture will be wiped from the face of the earth. But... Before we do that, we're going to hire Josephus to write down everything about who you are in a book so that if we're ever curious hundreds of years from now, we can remember, oh yeah, there were those guys. They're gone now, but here's the record of who they were. That was the job Josephus was given, okay? He was the author of The Jewish War and the Antiquities of the Jews, a massive history of the Jewish people written in 95 AD, and he talks about Jesus. One of the, the, the statements of Josephus was, uh, Festus was now dead and Albinus was uh, but upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, whose name was James. We know that James was Jesus's brother and that he was martyred. And we know that he was Jesus's brother from the Bible. And here's Josephus saying, this is something that happened within 30 years of when it would have happened. There's another claim that Josephus makes. This one's pretty crazy. Here he writes in the Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, chapter 3. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people uh, as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease. And he appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still this to this day not disappeared. 
Now, this is contesting. Uh, but, and I don't have time to go into the details as to why this is contested. Uh, one point would be, it was not known. We know quite a bit about Josephus, and he does not appear to be a Christian in much of what he writes, but here he does, or at least very close. Um, also, uh, the language here is a little different. However, we do not, we have ancient copies of Josephus, and none of them uh, exclude this. So it's not like we have old copies that don't have this. And this is largely rejected by a lot of scholars and historians on the basis of the fact that Josephus himself wasn't a Christian and also because it's so devastatingly uh, helpful to the argument for the resurrection. But what I would say is this, is what historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, can agree upon is that there was a reference here if this is the exact reference that Josephus made, which is, uh, which is one of the possibilities, then it is a remarkable testimony outside of the Bible of what people believed in 95 AD about who Jesus was and what happened. Even if so, even if it's not, and it was changed by some well-intentioned but devastatingly stupid Christian to change the record so we don't know what Jesus, Josephus actually said. The previous record is not contested. So we know that there was probably something in here about Jesus being crucified under Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. Tacitus is another extra biblical source that we can look to to say, okay, what did the people of history around this time say? He was a Roman senator and historian living from 56 to 120 A.D., he chronicles in a letter that we have that this guy named Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, completely lining up with exactly what the Bible says. Interestingly, also, we have this guy, Pliny the Younger. Pliny was a lawyer and a magistrate, and he was in an interesting situation. He lived 61 to 113 AD, and he starts capturing these people who claim to be Christians these Jews who believe the Messiah has come and raised from the dead. And he writes back to the Roman emperor and he says, yeah, we got these guys and they're real weird. They're real zealous and they're superstitions. And uh, we just start torturing them to see what they know. And, uh, you know, we're asking you, emperor, what do you want us to do with them? And the emperor writes back and says, eh, keep up the torture. And, um, you know, if they deny Christ, if they reject this idea of this resurrected, resurrected Savior, then let them go. But if they cling to it, then just keep torturing them until they die. We have this letter of what he asked and the emperor's response about these early Christians and what they believed. So what I want to give you is a clear picture of Christian, non-Christian, Whoever you are, if you're into history, there are some basic facts about Jesus Christ that are agreed upon by all serious scholars. Because you may have watched the History Channel, and you may have been like, well, Elaine Peggles and people believe that Jesus may not have even been born. Those are not serious historians that are not considered credible in the, 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 the scholarly community of serious historians. What is agreed upon is there was a man named Jesus. He was a first century rabbi. 
He called disciples to himself. He was crucified by the Romans near Jerusalem under the orders of Pontius Pilate. Christianity spread like wildfire soon after his death and his disciples were persecuted and at least some of them were killed for what they believed. Everybody agrees from the extra biblical record alone in those points. And that is important because it corroborates a lot of the claims of the Bible itself. Let's take a look at another piece of biblical evidence that I think is very important, which is Paul himself. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, For I delivered to you as of first importance that also which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now meaning when he wrote this, not now. <laughs> but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now this is a super important piece of biblical evidence right here because I want you to pay very close attention to what it is that Paul is saying. Paul, a first century rabbi, probably came to Christ right around 35 AD, right in that time frame, give or take a year or two. Came to become a believer and claims to have seen the risen Christ himself. And what he says is, I gave you guys what was given to me, and then what proceeds is in the formulation of a creed, meaning that this was probably a saying that was a very early saying, because remember, most of this culture was preliterate, and so they would come up with little sayings, and his little saying was that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That was something you would memorize as a brand new Christian to help keep the important parts in your head. And he says, this was given to me, and I gave it to you. And if we take that to mean what it says, it means that this is one of the earliest creeds of the faith that would have been developed and spread at the time of Saul's conversion, which puts this statement as a way for us to understand what Christians believe two or three years after the crucifixion. They believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead three years later. The people who were alive to see Jesus die believed he raised from the dead. And by the way, it's also a fifth eyewitness testimony, isn't it? Five. Five sources from 2,000 years ago that have stayed with us to tell us the importance of an empty tomb. So the historical evidence here is extraordinary. The disciples all died rather than recant. They went to their own deaths being tortured under the orders of the empire where if they said and cried out and denied God and denied the resurrection, they would be released and they all would rather die except for John who was banished to the island of Patmos rather than killed. 
They died rather than just say it wasn't true. Paul reversed the course of his entire life and career. He was a wealthy, powerful, educated man of influence and became a refugee, a man on the run, a fugitive from his own people and his own culture to gain what? Because he believed that he had met the risen Christ as he was on his way to continue the persecution and destruction of Christians. There's a guy, J. Warner Wallace, who was here at XSI, and he's, he wrote a book. He's got a lot of really good material. He's a homicide detective, and he was a non-believer. He was kind of like a modern-day William Ramsey, right? He was an atheist and a denier of the faith, and he wanted to take what he's learned about being a homicide cold case detective and apply it to the evidence for Jesus Christ and especially for the resurrection, and he has a three-minute video I want to show you that I think is pretty interesting. Sometimes people will ask me, well, how, how can you be sure that the disciples who either wrote Scripture or who testified about Jesus in the first century weren't lying either about the resurrection or about the details of Jesus' life? Could this whole thing we call Christianity just be a fabrication, a lie on the part of the disciples? Well, I kind of have three answers for that and five answers to that. I'll give it to you quickly. The three is this. In all my work as a detective, I've learned that people only commit a murder for one of three reasons. That's it. And the same is true for lying, stealing. We only lie, steal, cheat, sin, commit murder for one of three reasons. These are the only three motives that drive bad behavior. You ready? It's not hard to figure out, actually. One is financial greed. Two is sexual or relational lust. And three is the pursuit of power. So if we're going to suggest that the disciples lied, it would only be for one of those three reasons. And ask yourself, what did they get out of this in those three areas? Did they get wealth? Did they get, uh, you know, uh, uh, lots of girlfriends? <laughs> did they get um, in a powerful position? Think about it. Paul. Paul started off in a powerful position, writes most of the New Testament, and ends up struggling through most. He's chased all over the empire and ends up being suffering for his faith. To do what? To eventually go back and be in a position of power he started off with? He could have stayed where he was and had power. So in the end, I'm looking for motive. And I don't see any motive for these folks to lie, but there's even more. The five. Remember, I told you about three and five. There are five things that are required for anyone to successfully pull off a conspiracy. Maybe you haven't thought about that. Here they are. Smallest number of people who are conspiring together. Two people can lie, tell a secret, keep a secret more easily than, say, 22 or 222. Also, keep it for the smallest possible amount of time. Keeping a secret for a day is easier than keeping a secret for, for a year. Also, great communication between co-conspirators. If I stop one of you and question you, you better be able to tell the other person what you told me so I can get the same data from the second person. Four, have good, strong family relationships because family members don't ever rat off on each other. They don't, they don't tell each other's secrets. And lastly, five, no pressure. If no one's applying pressure, don't worry about it. You're going to get away with it. Now, ask yourself the question, were those five necessary requirements for a successful conspiracy available to the disciples. There's far too many of them. Remember, Paul says there's over 500 who saw the risen Christ on the same day who were available to the Corinthian church to be interviewed. Really? If you told me there's a conspiracy with 500 people, I would already say that's not reasonable. 
And then they're going to hold it for how long? Over 60 years? Really? So 500 people keep this secret for 60 years. And then how do they communicate with each other to make sure the story stays the same when they've been separated all the way from India to Spain? Uh, really? They're not Snapchatting each other in the first century, okay? So how are they keeping the secret together? And are there some family members? Yeah, there are some brother groups there, but Matthew is not related to anyone. He writes a gospel. What's in it for him? He was the tax collector called Levi, who wasn't even a disciple of John the Baptist, who then ends up holding on to this claim his entire life and then dies miserably as a result of it. And finally, do they, do they suffer you know, any kind of pressure? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, we know that the, many of these folks were martyred for their beliefs. And we have no record of anyone ever recanting their beliefs. So if you ask me, is it possible that they could have lied? Well, anything is possible, so I will typically say yes, but it is certainly not reasonable. And that's the standard, beyond a reasonable doubt, that I want to meet when I'm trying to decide if someone is lying to me. Yeah, he's got great stuff. I recommend his book highly and his website. There's great materials there. And so, you know, that's, that's what we're doing here is we're trying to look at, is, there, is this a reasonable position to hold that this person 2,000 years ago really raised from the dead? And it's useful to quickly then think about what are the alternate explanations, right? The classic things that you always look for that, that you may have heard before are, well, you know, this was a legend. You know, Jesus was just a rabbi. He was an inspirational figure. He died. He's dead in his tomb. He never raised from the dead. But someone, you know, 50, 60 years later, you know, came up with the idea that what if he did rise from the dead? And that became something that people began to talk about and eventually began to believe. And people that were born way after any of these events ever happened believed that Jesus raised from the dead. But if you go back in time and you meet Peter or you meet Paul or you meet these guys and you're like, oh, you follow Jesus who raised from the dead, they would be like, what? No. That, that must be a legend. But we know because we have records going back to when these people were still alive that show us these claims. There was not enough time for legend to occur because there were eyewitnesses available as these claims were being made. They say, well, you know, there was a mass hallucination. You know, Jesus is like Tupac or Elvis, you know, where people are like, oh, man, they're not really dead. They're just, you know, uh, going incognito to get away from the life of fame that they built for themselves. And that's what Jesus must have done. Over 500 people having a mass hallucination, something where they claim that they spoke with him, they touched him, they ate meals with him, they heard him teach. One guy at one point was like, oh, you know what? I bet it was like that movie with those magicians where he probably had like a secret twin brother that no one knew about. And so, you know, after he died, they brought the twin out or just a guy who looked like him. And everybody was like, oh, wow. You know, all of that would be fine except for a couple of problems. You have to realize Jesus's enemies, the people who had him killed, were aware that he predicted that he would raise from the dead, and so they would have had the highest possible motivation to disprove his resurrection. How would they do that? You've got thousands of people. Put yourself in the, in the seat of the Pharisees, okay? You believe that this guy is a threat to your way of life and to your seat of power, so you have him killed under what you know are some spurious charges 
But you know, you've tried everything and you just got to eliminate this guy. And within a few weeks of his public execution, thousands of people, the same people that were crying out, crucify, crucify in the streets, are now saying that they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. What's your move at that point to squash this fledgling heresy? Just open up the tomb and bring out the body. If it was an imposter, a mass hallucination, or a legend, bring us the body. The the movement of faith would have been stopped dead in its tracks right then and there. Because they could have just been like, nope, here he is, rotting. But they couldn't. Because the tomb was empty. Well, you know, there are these other theories, like the swoon theory. This is the theory that Jesus, you know, was flogged and beaten, hung on a cross, stabbed in the side, the blood in the water ran out, but he wasn't actually dead. He was faking it. Then they put him in a tomb, sealed the tomb with a giant rock and posted guards outside. And then Jesus, who was not yet dead, got up, rolled the rock aside, fought himself through the Roman guard and appeared to be resurrected. For one thing, the Romans knew how to kill, right? And all of them, again, would have a vested interest in ensuring that something like this, the reason for posting the guard outside of the tomb was that he had claimed that he would raise from the dead. The tomb was sealed and guarded. People say, well, someone stole the body, right? They snuck in past the Romans who were probably sleeping on duty, you know, rolled the rock aside, grabbed the body and made off with it. But the question is, who would have stolen the body? Who has motive to do that? Who would have done this? Say, well, the disciples. Well, again, they died claiming that Jesus was risen from the dead. They essentially, from the standpoint of the wisdom of the world, they ruined their lives living for something that they would have known was a lie and dying for something that they know was a lie and which they didn't profit from in their lifetime. The Romans, would the Romans have done this, uh, stolen the body? It would have made them look pretty bad. And then how do you explain the fact that people are seeing, over 500 people are seeing the risen Christ? The Pharisees certainly wouldn't have stolen the body. It's devastating to their case. What we're talking about here is the weight of evidence. We're talking about not something that we would say we could prove 100% one way or 100% another way. We're talking about what is the most likely explanation for the things that we know happened from a historical standpoint. And we started this out by saying extraordinary claims deserve extraordinary examination. And that is true. This deserves our thought This deserves us going much deeper into the details of this than we have gone tonight. I hope that you have gotten a cursory understanding of the kinds of evidence that exist for this incredibly important event, that there is powerful historical evidence. And the question that we really need to wrestle with, if we do not believe, is, is it possible that Jesus did raise from the dead? Are you crazy for believing that? Are you insane for believing that? Or is it actually quite credible given 
what happened, the history, and the movement that arose from the very location where he was publicly executed. I also would encourage you, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to go deeper into this evidence. Talk with people who are here tonight. Ask them why they believe. But I would also also ask you to turn to God and pray. And you're going to be like, yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of the whole problem, isn't it? I don't believe in that. I'm not asking you to believe in that. What I'm asking you to do is to turn to God and, and say to him, If you are real and this is real, will you show me? Because there is such a thing as experiential evidence. There is such a thing as God moving in your heart and God moving in your life in a way that you cannot explain to others, but that is very real. And if God is not real, that prayer will do you no harm. That will do nothing. But if God is real then I would suggest buckle up because he may not answer immediately. He may not answer in the time that you think, but God will answer prayers. And if you ask him to show you who he is, he will reveal himself to you. He's done it for so many of us. This is about faith. But faith rides piggyback on reason. And what I mean by that is, is that this is not something that we just believe because our parents believed it or because our pastor told us or because we like the people except for the weird things that they believe. So we pretend because we like to come here and hang out. This is something where we should examine the evidence. We should look to the truth. We should look to the record. We should look to the claims. And we should turn to God in our hearts. And ask him to come into our life. God stands at the door and knocks. What that means is is that he does not kick the door open and grab you by the hair, kicking and screaming, dragging you into a relationship with him. He invites you into a relationship with him. But you have to open the door. We'll finish with this. Theologian N.T. Wright, I think, sums all of this up in a very poignant and simple way. He says, after Jesus of Nazareth had been executed, anybody two days, three days, three weeks, or three years after that would have never have said he was the Messiah unless something extraordinary had happened to convince them that God had vindicated him. And that's what we have on the resurrection. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.